How do Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Catholics understand the consumption of alcohol. Have you ever struggled to speak to somebody about how drinking alcohol or even smoking a pipe is not sinful? Today, we are going to discuss this as well as the church's contribution to beer, wine, and spirits. And we might even offer some cocktail recipes for you to try. Stay tuned. Welcome. We are joined today by Dr. Michael Foley, a professor of patristics in the Great Text Program at Baylor University, a professor of theology at the Aquinas Institute, and the author of approximately 350 articles in 14 books, including such fantastic titles as The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity, Drinking with the Saints, Drinking with Saint Nick, and Drinking with Your Patron Saints, uh, Mike and his wife, Alexandra, live in Waco, Texas, with their six children, 12 chickens, two turtles, one dog, and 12,000 bees. And I do assume you've counted every one of those bees. Uh, welcome, Michael. Thanks so much. Michael, it's great to have you here. So um, obviously, as the teaser suggested, we're going to talk a little bit about um, drinking and alcohol right and uh but but you have written books outside of this right as an academic professor and scholar and i'd love for you just to talk a little bit about uh yourself and about what brought you uh to the conclusion and the decision that you were not going to write one not two but three books on drinking with saints and ha a holy happy hour as you mentioned in your books uh they're really great reads and and really fantastic mixology i was trying to think of a term to to give these books um it, historical mixology. They're really awesome. And so I'd love to hear from you uh, a little bit about your life and about what brought you uh, to the decision to write these books. Well, um, as Sam mentioned, my wife and I have six kids uh, and we also homeschool them. So mm -hmm. what that means is that we have a very strong incentive to drink at the end of the day. <laughs> and so... Uh, <laughs> My wife and I have always enjoyed an evening cocktail together, um, but we've also really enjoyed trying to have our family observe the feasts of the liturgical year as much as possible. And there are so many wonderful customs and traditions associated with different saints' days and feast days. So we had these two interests, and basically what we did was bring them together, um, it, you know, try to think of a way for lack of a better term, to, to drink liturgically. And uh, I have a PhD in theology. I'm a Catholic theologian by training. So I, I knew how to research the lives of saints. I knew a little about the liturgical year. And so it was just a matter of pairing the right drinks with the right saints. And I looked online to see if this had been done before. And I saw that there are dozens of really outstanding Catholic cookbooks uh, on the market that would tell you what cake to bake for so-and-so's feast day. But there was no Catholic bartender's manual. And I thought, aha, this is, uh, this is a lacuna in the market that sorely needs to be filled. And that's how we got going. You saw the void. I love it. And um meant to mention at the beginning, but we're going to give away five of these books. Uh, stay tuned to the end of the episode so that we can give away five of his uh, Drinking with the Patron Saints books. So um, anyways, yeah, they're really, they're really wonderful. So. Well, yeah. Thanks. And um, just to kind of uh, ask the obvious question that a lot of people might have in the back of their mind right now is there's a lot of, uh, debates about the morality of alcohol, the wisdom of alcohol, even if it's not a moral question, should we, you know, drink at all? I've, I mean, I grew up in a household where um, drinking was not 
encouraged by any stretch of the imagination. And we attended churches where it was outright condemned as a severe sin, you know, kind of Protestant churches. This was before I was Catholic. So coming into the Catholic church, um, it was, it was kind of a new experience for me to go to the parish hall uh, and see one of those little boxes of wine and like have beers over here on the counter. And I was like, what is this? These Catholics, like, they know how to enjoy alcohol. <laughs> so it was, uh, so how do you, I mean, how do you respond to some of the moral questions around alcohol? Because truth be told, there are people who, whose lives have suffered because of alcohol. Yeah. Um, and that is a very real thing. So how, how do you respond to that and, and balance that? It, it is a very real thing. And, and I, I definitely don't make light of it. Uh, you know, in my own extended family, there were members who have uh, struggled with alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, but what our Protestant brethren fail to understand is that the Bible makes a distinction between drunkenness and drinking in moderation. Mm -hmm. yes. And drunkenness is unequivocally condemned but not drinking in moderation. As a matter of fact, it was just assumed to be a normal part of, you know, first Hebrew and then early Christian life. Uh, it's a part of the Seder meal, the Passover. It, it you know, it, there's the wedding of uh, the, the miracle of Cana. Um, there is the Last Supper. So clearly wine, alcohol is not a bad thing. So the key is learning to have learning personally to drink in moderation, but also to have a culture that supports drinking in moderation. Yeah. And with the notable exception of the Irish, Catholics have done a pretty good job of having a moderate drinking culture. Uh, I'm thinking especially of the Mediterranean countries. Uh, they drink wine every day, but their alcoholism rates are actually quite low, much, much lower than the United States. Yeah. That's a really important point. Um, culture is really powerful in shaping these and I uh, these things. And I, I think um, American culture can sometimes tend towards excess in various ways. But um, yeah, to to exercise the virtue of temperance as a cultural phenomenon is really powerful. And um, so I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right about the, the cultural uh, importance of this. W what seems to me to happen in the American South, for example, where you did have a very strong uh, sense of condemnation of alcohol, is that it created a kind of schizophrenia. You were mm. either a teetotaler or you were distilling moonshine in your backyard. And, and there was just, you know, and there the twain shall meet. Mm. Um, but when alcohol became this kind of forbidden fruit, of course, it becomes susceptible to uh, excess and abuse. Uh, when you put a taboo on it, it, uh, it, it becomes more problematic. But if it had just been incorporated into daily life and, and the children learned how to drink responsibly from their parents, it was on the table, it was no big deal, it wasn't being stigmatized, then you have a, a moderate culture. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I liked how you said two things and narrow the twain shall meet as well as um, adopting this into our, our daily lives. And I was blessed to hear a conversation uh, that you gave uh, a lecture that you gave where you said something so poignant, poignant at the beginning, you said um, that when done right, uh, you know, that the radiating of the liturgy can come into our homes. Right. And that the, the, the sacred and the profane um, aren't to be completely separated or to be, you know, fully intertwined. And you made a, a, a joke about um, poor mass um, liturgies and things like that. And I'd love for you to talk about that because here at the Catholic Gentleman, we get this very often with our, our pipes, right? So we've got pipes in our logo. And uh, that comes up all the time is that we're supportive of, of people dying of lung cancer and esophagus cancer. And we are, you know, therefore supporting such a, a wicked sin. And, you know, we're, we're ignorant and, and things like that. And, and really it's a misunderstanding of the sacramentality of life. And I'd love, and you speak so great about it. So I'd love for you to talk to our listeners um, about that and really kind of whatever direction uh, you're inspired. That's right. Um, and you're quite right, especially the pipe. 
uh, it is such a noble uh, instrument for smoking. Mm. Um, couple things just with respect to that. Number one is the only mention of tobacco in the catechism of the Catholic Church is that it says that alcohol and tobacco uh, should be consumed moderately, mm-hmm. which means you can have a virtuous consumption of tobacco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, the catechism doesn't ban it entirely. Um, and as for the health hazards, of, of course, all smoking tobacco does have its health hazards. But the last time the United States Surgeon General did a study of pipe smokers, was in 1964, and the conclusion was that the average American pipe smoker lived longer than the average American. <laughs> I've not heard That's that. That's amazing. Now, now, in fairness, the average American also included cigarette smokers, so that, <laughs> that kind of, I think, skewed the results a little, but still, um, I, I do believe you can live uh, a, a long life and be a moderate uh, pipe smoker. Yeah. And could you speak to the sacramentality of, of alcohol in, in the life, you know, in our lives and God's creation? God created all things good and all substances good. And uh, it, it's up to man to figure out the virtuous way to use them. Um, but there can be a virtuous use of uh, alcohol. There can be a virtuous use of tobacco. Uh, created goods are not evil. Um, it's it's our use or abuse of them where the morality comes into play. And again, I, I believe there is a virtuous use for both of these things. Alcohol, especially because it is so intertwined with festivity. I mean, actually, both of the things that we're talking about, pipe smoking and alcohol, are best enjoyed in fellowship. So you mentioned the sacramentality of things. You could argue that these two things are sacramental in in two ways. One is that a a sacramentum is a divine sign. It's a reminder of uh, the the goodness of creation. Um, But it can also be sacramental in the second sense that it supports community. It supports Catholic fellowship. Um, Again, provided that it's done virtuously. Yeah. No, amen. So the the point you make about uh, health is really interesting about pipe smokers living longer. And, and again, it's all about moderation. I, I remember reading a, an interview with, I'm, I'm sure she's passed on now, but the oldest lady in the world at the time was 112. And they asked her what her what her lifestyle was like. And she she smoked two cigarettes a day, one in the morning and one in the evening. She also got plenty of exercise, rode her bike everywhere and and had tons of friends and things like that. But really what it what it what it did was just contributed to this lifestyle of of joy, kind of like you're describing of community, friendship, time in nature, things like that. But the the enjoyment of tobacco was not immoderate in her case. Um but I do want to, I, I believe it was you, it was, it was someone really smart like you, but, but I, read a, I read an article once about um, the different kinds of things that you can smoke and kind of the spiritual significance of each of them. So you went through like cigarettes, you went through pipes, like even marijuana and like the different meanings of all of these things. Uh, was that you? <laughs> Yes, that, that was. Uh, it's an article called Tobacco and the Soul, and it's available online. It was first things that published it years ago, but I think you can, I think they still have it posted, but there are other websites that have it as well. But I, you're right, I, I compare the three kinds of smoking tobacco to the, the, the so-called three parts of the soul, which is the way that Figures like Plato and and St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas thought of the soul, uh, having basically three different kinds of desire and the three different kinds of smoking tobacco correspond to that. So I I don't know if you want to get into that. Well, I I don't want to get too far afield, but I will say there is a deeper significance to all of these things. And I would encourage everybody who is listening to uh, look that article up because it really is fantastic. And we can even put it in the show notes um, but it's it's a definitely a different way 
of looking at at smoking. Um, but I want to kind of switch gears real quick uh, uh, and talk about Catholic contribution to the world of alcohol because we may be one of the only religions in the world, as far as I know, anyway, where, where you have monastics brewing, you know, beer, uh, growing, you know, producing wine, like even liqueurs and all this. So can you just talk us through some of the significant contributions of Catholics to the world of alcohol? Oh, one of the things that really surprised me in the course of researching for Drinking with the Saints and the, the two sequels was... I knew there was some Catholic impact on the world of alcohol, but I really didn't realize how extensive mm. it really was. It's, it's amazing. Um, so you mentioned beer. You know, the finest beer in the world is uh, Trappist beer. And, it can, and it's because it's brewed by the Trappist and only, is it, I think it's now 12 different locations in the world. Uh, so you have Trappist brewing beer, uh, the Benedictines, the Augustinians also had a tradition of brewing. Uh, the Catholic Church has had a huge impact on the wine industry. Basically, it was Franciscan friars who started the California wine industry. And they didn't start the wine industry be, to make a profit or whatever. But when you're a missionary on the other side of the world, you have to bring with you two skill sets. You have to know how to uh, grow and make bread, or grow grain, make bread. And you have to have viniculture if you're going to continue to celebrate the sacrament. So um, these missionaries brought with them the skills to make bread and wine so that they could continue to celebrate mass. That's the start of the California wine industry. That's the start of the wine industry in Argentina, Chile, Australia. It was, it was Catholic missionaries. That's amazing. That is. I, I had no idea. <laughs> Neither did I. That's so great. <laughs> um, what about, I know you talk about whiskey, right? Scotch is one of my favorite um, uh, drinks of choice. Now I, I've got a lot more um, uh, opportunity to, um, to expand my palate uh, because of your books, but I know Scotch is, is one of my preferred and there's a Catholic contribution to, uh, to whiskey, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly. That is correct. Uh, uh, from what we know, whiskey was actually invented by Irish monks. Mm -hmm. and, that is not a surprise. Um, <laughs> exactly. And they're the ones, at least according to some of the history accounts that I read, they're the ones that brought the knowledge of distillation to Scotland when they were evangelizing the Scots. Wow. So, uh, Scotch is great but it, it must pay tribute to Ireland uh, uh, as, as, a, as getting its inspiration. But the earliest recorded mention of whiskey was actually in a medical manual where it prescribed whiskey as a quote, as a cure for uh, quote, paralysis of the tongue. <laughs> apparently works because the Irishman has ever been accused of having a paralyzed tongue since the invention of whiskey. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> are you are you Irish? I am. Michael Patrick Foley is my full name. I'm Irish. Okay. That 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 makes a lot of sense. I now see these books in the new light. So um <laughs> Oh, that, that's that's fascinating wow so i mean are there are there catholic liqueurs and stuff i thought i heard something about about that well there is benedictine liqueur uh which harkens to the age when the benedictine monks actually made their own liqueurs mm. the most famous liqueur in the catholic world is also the world's most famous liqueur chartreuse Oh. Uh, it is a 500-year-old recipe, tightly guarded by the Carthusian monks high in the French Alps. Uh, the secret is it, it, hand-picked 120 herbs from the, from the nearby mountains, but we don't know what the herbs are. The recipe is so tightly guarded that only two monks at a time know the recipe. <laughs> and it... It's just an absolutely amazing uh, liqueur. It was invented as a medical elixir 
And interestingly enough, the Carthusians themselves do not drink chartreuse recreationally, but they do use it medicinally. They, uh, they're, high, they're high in the French Alps in this very drafty old castle. And anytime one of them gets sick, uh, starts to have cold symptoms, they will take a tablespoon of chartreuse and it will nip it right in the bud. And wow. I, I can confirm that, that uh, when I start getting cold symptoms, I'll just take a tablespoon of chartreuse. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if it works, great. If it doesn't, hey, you're still enjoying chartreuse. <laughs> That's right. Mix it with some V8 juice and you get the vegetable uh medley as well that's that's too fun wow i did not know that uh too cool um i want to talk about uh this holy happy hour and i know that you break down in your book and you've talked about it before what is necessary what are some elements or, or necessary conditions if you will to to drink um as a Catholic, as somebody joyful, as an individual uh, who's who's doing it in moderation, as you already um, mentioned, what are some of the other elements um, that that you feel are necessary to to making sure that we're consuming alcohol in the way that um, let's say God would have intended? Right. Well, uh, if your readers are interested, or your listeners are interested, they can read uh, another brief article by mine called "How to Drink Like a Saint." Okay. And I, I give five basically easy lessons for how to drink like a saint. And I can I can share those with you now in a yeah, please. form. Oh, terrific. So the first we've already been talking about, uh, the first way to drink like a saint is to drink with moderation. And that's not only the more ethical choice, but it's also the more pleasant. It's mm. when you drink to excess that you start getting diminishing returns on your investment. Mm. Um, and also when you drink with moderation, it's far more conducive to conversation and fellowship. So even for selfish reasons, it makes sense to uh, drink with moderation. Uh, the second way to uh, drink like a saint is to drink with memory. Um, one very important distinction is drinking to remember and drinking to forget. People who drink to forget, they're trying to just simply forget the stress or disappointments in their life, are usually involved in unhealthy drinking, whereas good, healthy drinking is, is drinking to remember. The kind, for example, that it exists at a wedding. When you go to a good Catholic wedding and the wine is flowing, uh, you're not only remembering the love of this couple, but you're also remembering a whole chain of love. You're remembering your own wedding. You're remembering uh, the, the goodness of the love that brought this couple together. And you raise the glass and you remember that. So drink to remember is another crucial point. Yeah. Uh, the third is very similar to it. Um, drink with gratitude. Memory and gratitude are obviously tied together. And um, we should... We should remember the good things in our life and then be grateful for them. So drinking with, with gratitude is another key point. Um, and then also drinking with, I would argue, a sense of ritual can actually contribute to the, the, the event. And what I mean by this is um, the, the more important the event, the, the more there is a sense of ritual involved. That is why our holiest get-together as Catholics, the Mass, is so very ritualistic. Ritual and joy are not mutually exclusive categories. Ritual channels our joy, uh, crystallizes it, focuses it. Hmm. And the ritual I'm thinking of with respect to drinking is, number one, drinking liturgically. You know, raise a glass to the, the saint or, or uh, pair the, the drink with the saint. Um, but the other thing is a very simple ritual we're all familiar with, and it is the toast. Uh, toasting and drinking have gone hand in hand for millennia. And a simple toast can turn an amorphous get-together into an event. Uh, it, it brings a focus to the reason for our celebration. Uh, so I am a big fan of the ritual of toasting and it's a very simple ritual. It doesn't have to be 
a long, tedious, well thought out toast. Um, but it, it ha but it is, I think, should be a part of any drinking event. Perfect. No, wonderful. Uh, well, that leads kind of to my next question that kind of ties into what you were just talking about. And I, I like this concept of drinking liturgically. Um, but you've written three recipe books of different cocktails and even beers and things for uh, as a way to celebrate uh, different saints and different feast days in the church year. Um, I'm wondering how you how you went about this process. Um, was this just kind of an arbitrary, you know, well, I, this saint would probably, you know, this drink seems to go well for various reasons. Or was there really some relationship between the drinks that you chose and, say, the life of that saint? Well, Sam, all I can say is that, first of all, it was the best research project ever. <laughs> you drank all of these, I think. My long academic <laughs> career, this, this was a fun research project. <laughs> but it, it was difficult, especially with the early saints who lived in a vastly different cu culture of drinking than our own. You know, they didn't have cocktails to choose from. And, and we don't know the drinking habits of a lot of the early saints. What was it that they preferred? Modern saints, you know, we have a lot more biographical data. So I was left to figuring out just any kind of tie-in that I could between a saint and a particular drink. Um, in a lot of cases, they came from a famous winemaking region. So you could, you know, you could pair the wine of that region with the saint. Um, maybe it was a symbol of theirs in Christian art, uh, like a pomegranate. Well, then we could pair that with um, something that takes grenadine. Um, mm. It was it was just any tie-in I could find. And uh, I remember one time some, uh, a lady asked me, uh, you know, why did you pair this cocktail with the saint? And I explained it. And she said, well, that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> and, and I said, I said, Madam, make no mistake, the entire book is a stretch. I'm pairing booze and saints. What did you expect? <laughs> yes. Well, we know we know many of the early saints um, enjoyed beer, too. Uh, I think, wasn't it St. Bridget that said, I'd like a lake of beer for the King of Kings and uh, drink it for all eternity or something like that? Uh, that is exactly correct, yes. She wrote a, a beautiful uh, poem called The Lake of Beer. <laughs> Catholics great. are definitely not against drinking. That's right. Now, I like the depth, though, of some of your um, uh, feast days, right? So like St. Sebastian, right? There's there's quite a few opportunities there in, in situations. And you go through different wines and different beer and different uh, obvious cocktail mixes and things like that. So there's like uh, fun for the whole family. Um, <laughs> but no, there's there's the opportunity uh, to to really it grow in, in, I would say, your knowledge of these things, right? And, and it's... Um, incredibly impressive as I've gone through it. I, you know, I love the, the beginning, but then, you know, also there's, how do you find some of these cocktail, um, uh, ingredients, right? Like, oh, oh, I, I think it's good for our listeners to understand that if you, if you're going to endeavor to, um, have, be a good host at a party and celebrate some sort of, uh, feast day, that you are going to have to do some planning to to master some of these uh, cocktails. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yes. Well, I, I, I got to comment on one thing first. You you mentioned fun for the whole family. <sighs> one of the highest compliments that I got after the uh, the first book, Drinking with the Saints, came out. It was a large Catholic family, and uh, one day at dinner, they went around the table and they asked everybody, "What's your favorite book?" And they got to the five-year-old and he said, drinking with the saints. <laughs> and the reason why is that his, uh, he had never heard the, the lives of the saints before. And so his parents, before they would have a drink, would, would read aloud the little biography that I had included. And he was absolutely fascinated. Um, so oh, yes, wow. there actually is uh, fun for the whole family in the, uh, in the book, even for the little ones. That's right. And we're not talking three, two beer. We're talking, um, you know, <laughs> informative information. I love it. <laughs> exactly. But I'm sorry, John, what was your question again? 
Um, yeah, prepping, right? The, the, how do you find oh, some yeah. of these ingredients and, and what would be some of your suggestions to, to approach um, uh, the book? I really tried not to include any ingredient that was too esoteric or hard okay. to find. But on the other hand, you know, I did need some variety. Um, and, and, and sometimes it's frustrating that, you know, when researching this book, I would have to buy a bottle of something yeah. to test a cocktail. And the recipe calls for a quarter of an ounce. <sighs> and well, you know, come on. And I, I've still got that bottle seven years later in my, in my cabinet. Um, it is true that if you bought every ingredient for every recipe in the book, you would end up having a rather large liquor cabinet such as I. <laughs> Yeah. Um, a liquor pantry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, but that said, you don't have to do that. I, I, mm. I really did try not to get too arcane or esoteric. I live in Waco, Texas, and I actually figured Waco would actually be a pretty good canary in the mine mm. for the availability of liquor because Waco is not the best place to buy liquor. It, it's mm. not New York city or Chicago. Um, but it's not the worst either. It's not a dry county or anything like that. So I figured if I could find the ingredient in Waco, so too could the average American reader. Um, yeah. So that was one of my litmus tests when when picking recipes. I like that. And there's something virtuous about the need to to prepare, right? It almost protects you from uh, drinking in excess uh, because the time that you have to put into creating some of these uh, drinks, the experience with um, with those around you um, really just add to that uh, that unity that that can come out about uh, drinking responsibly and drinking, um, you know, with a certain sense of merriment about it. So. I agree. Yeah. Oh, so, and you mentioned merriment. I'm sorry, Sam. I had, I cheated your audience. I said that there were five ways to drink like a saint, and I had only mentioned four, but you just mentioned the fifth. <laughs> uh, drink with merriment. And, um, and what I mean by that is that I make a distinction between having fun and making merry. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing wrong with fun. Fun is fun but you could conceivably have fun alone, you know, like a, mm. a teenage boy playing a video game by himself is having fun, but merriment presupposes fellowship. That's why we have that phrase, the more the merrier. And so a uh, good Catholic drinking is, is drinking in a climate of authentic merriment. That's, a, that's, that's awesome. Uh, it reminds me of the word, uh, uh, that it isn't used very often, but it's a great word, uh, conviviality, like to enjoy joy, <laughs> enjoy each other's company. Um, and, and it's a wonderful thing. I, you know, when you, when we experience that, it is one of the greatest joys of life. Um, I agree. So I was wondering if you could just maybe walk us through a recipe uh, of a cocktail that you talk about in the book. Good question. Um, well, we could do something liturgical for uh, September 8th, the Feast of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Praise God. This is a lovely feast day. And yes. there are a couple of, this was a rather easy one because there actually was a tradition of honoring Our Lady on her birthday with alcohol in the winemaking regions of France. Uh, today's feast is known as Our Lady of the Grape Harvest mm. because it falls, September 8th falls around the time that they're harvesting their grapes. And so this is the day where they will uncork bottles of wine, they'll bring up a statue of Our Lady, uh, and uh, we'll pay tribute to her. So one easy thing on this feast day is to have a French wine in her honor. But you asked for a cocktail, didn't you? Uh, yeah, well, no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm this is about, good. I'm all about wine, but yeah, I mean, if you have a cocktail that's appropriate, <sighs> um, uh, but if not, we can leave it at wine. <laughs> yeah, maybe the Feast of the Archangels or something, right? That comes on later in September. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of, yeah. That's right. Um, I don't actually uh, have a specific recommendation in the book for a cocktail for Our Lady on her nativity, but 
I do have um, what is actually my favorite cocktail of all time, dedicated to Our Lady, that I would recommend for any Marian feast. Oh, good. And the name of this cocktail is called the White Lady. Mm. I have paired it with the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, you know, the, the purity, the whiteness. Yeah. But like I say, it's good for any Marian feast. Uh, I would, this is the kind of drink that I would love to enjoy every day. Unfortunately, it is somewhat high maintenance in preparing. Okay. For example, you have to take egg white and confectioner sugar and beat it for at least five minutes until it starts to form soft peaks. Oh, wow. And then you mix it in with uh, lemon juice, vodka, gin, and I think what was maraschino liqueur. I can't remember the final ingredient. Yeah. Um, but oh my goodness, is it a fantastic drink. So for special occasions, I highly recommend the white lady. I, I wanted to, to one up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you, um, what's the most uh, advanced end time or, or most, you know, intricate and interesting uh, of drink that you come across that maybe we could find in this book? So you can find the white lady uh, in drinking with St. Nick and drinking with your patron saints. Okay. Drinking with the saints also has a version of the white lady, but I actually found a better version after the first book came out. Okay. It was a priest friend who actually recommended, no, you need to use this recipe <laughs> instead. It was a variation of the recipe, but it was Little a priests. superior variation. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he had always sworn by this version of the white lady. And so he very kindly shared that information with me. Oh, great. Um, in drinking with St. Nick, you, you mentioned other unusual cocktails. Okay, yeah. I have a smoking cocktail, mm. which is a really fun thing to do. It's in honor of the, the burning bush uh, in which uh, Yahweh appeared and is one of the O antiphons leading up to Christmas. Oh, yeah. And so in honor of the burning bush, you basically uh, make yourself an old-fashioned cocktail Right. So the, the usual ingredients, uh, bitters, uh, a whiskey, simple syrup. But then you infuse it with the burnt smoke of a sprig of thyme or rosemary, excuse me, rosemary. So you'll take your cocktail, you'll take maybe four inches of a sprig of rosemary, you put it in there, you set it on fire. And then immediately you take your shaker, turn it upside down, you put it on. On top of it, it extinguishes it, and it turns to smoke, and then you count to 10. Okay. And in that 10 seconds, you get this wonderfully smoky flavor in your, in your whiskey. It's, it's wow. really quite amazing. Oh, that's unique. I am definitely going to look that one up. I have never tried that one. I've never tried the smoke. I've heard about people doing something smoky-esque. I like that one, too, because it has you know, the rosemary connection or mother's rose. I actually live on a rosemary court. That's actually the street I live on. So how apropos, I can, I can celebrate with the neighbors and evangelize at the same time. I love it. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> that's right. And I was happy to have that tie into to rosemary because that is a plant that's very much tied to our lady. Yeah. Praise God. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, I'm kind of the flipping John's question on his head. What would be like the easiest cocktail to get started with? Because I've drunk, uh, I've I've had cocktails many times, but I've never made them at home. And so, if I were to go to the liquor store tonight and pick up some ingredients, like what would be a really easy, accessible one to get started with? Well, I just mentioned the old fashioned. Uh, it mm -hmm. only has three ingredients. Uh, whiskey, uh, either a bourbon or uh, a rye, um, bitters, 
which come in very small little bottles and you only use a couple of drops. And then uh, simple syrup, which is equal parts sugar and water. And okay. you just kind of mix it around until it, it, it becomes clear. And it's very easy. I mean, one of the reasons why my wife and I were so excited about this book is that, as I mentioned earlier, we love to, uh, uh, we love to observe the liturgical year, but um, it is so much easier to mix a cocktail in honor of a saint than to bake a cake in honor of a saint. So don't be afraid of making cocktails. It's super easy. Awesome. Yeah, very true. No, I like that a lot. Um, well, before we go on to the next question, any other uh, recipes that you would like to um, share with, uh, with our audience, ones that you found were uniquely enjoyable? Oh, where to begin? <laughs> I bet, I bet. Um, well, I can at least say that the, the great cocktails of our era are represented in Drinking with the Saints. Mm -hmm. I, I found ways of pairing the old fashioned, for example, is the drink for Pope St. Pius X. Uh, he's the Pope who gave us the oath against modernism. So I figured that, you know, he, he deserved an old fashioned. Um, <laughs> Uh, Mother, Cab Mother Cabrini uh, gets yeah. the Manhattan. That is also nice. a very famous cocktail because of all her work in that city. I love it. Um, a fantastic cocktail is a whiskey sour. Mm. Um, I assigned that to St. Jerome, who was known for his acerbic character. Nice. He was a very sour personality. That's so I right. figured that, that, was a, that was a good pairing. Terrific. That's fantastic. Uh, so I want to, I just want to kind of conclude on my end, at least with a, just to kind of return to that, that question at the beginning, because I know even just with the title of this episode, that we're going to get people coming out of the woodwork and say, you know, how dare you? And, and, you know, you're, you're, you're leading people into temptation and, uh, you know, all of these things. And, and first of all, my fir first part of the question is like, how did we get this puritanical streak? Uh, and second, like, how how can we counter that in a charitable way and demonstrate to people that drinking is not only moral, but an opportunity for virtue? Yes, exactly. How we got this puritanical streak, I honestly don't entirely know, because ironically, the Puritans themselves weren't terribly puritanical about this. They brewed their own beer. And they were part of the, 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 the rum trade. Um, so um, I think it, it's a strange product of modernity and a, a strange product of 19th century American Christianity. Um, I suspect one reason why it, this kind of puritanical spirit was able to take off was that it was the first time in history that, that man could afford to. That is to say, it's not until the 19th century that you get things like safe water treatment plants. Prior mm. to the advent of, of modern safe water, mm. it was safer to drink beer than water. Um, you know, it, uh, and what people would do, and this goes back to the Roman Empire, is they would add just a few drops of wine to their water to kill waterborne pathogens. So, um, yeah, I, alcohol was always associated with health. Uh, and so you have a temperance movement was unthinkable uh, in earlier ages. Yeah, I, I remember when I was uh, going to a Baptist church, I once heard a pastor give an hour long sermon on how uh, the wine at the Last Supper was not actually wine. It was more like Welch's grape juice. Uh, like, this is this is a stretch but yeah that is that is fascinating yeah yeah i know and that that a lot of uh anti-alcohol protestants will use the the two wine theory as justification for their belief but i mean from a strictly linguistic historical exegetical point of view there's absolutely no evidence for this when St. Paul says, be not drunk on wine, he uses the word oinos, and that's the exact same word that's used for the, at the wedding of Cana, 
Um, and that's the same word he uses when he commands Timothy to drink wine uh, for a stomach ache. Right? Mm. It's, it's yeah. the same word. Yes. And so to play on what Sam was just saying, what's the solution that, that you're arguing and that obviously we've been talking about uh, to this notion uh, that you, you have to be, you know, a purist and separated from alcohol completely to, to live a truly holy life. And obviously we're, we're working against that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on just that solution that you're obviously a proponent of. So, yeah, well, not, not to repeat myself, but I, I'd go back to those five talking points that yeah. if you observe all of those, you really won't have a problem. Uh, I once gave uh, this talk in uh, Colorado and a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, um, I'm an alcoholic and um, I don't know why I came to your talk, but I was just curious and I'm really grateful for your talk. And uh, as I heard you mention these five talking points, I, I realized that I never observed a single one of them. Mm. Um, I started drinking at the age of 15 to forget, she said. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then she just, you know, kind of went down from there. So, uh, yeah, it, it, the dangers of alcohol are real, but like any other created good, it can be used wisely. Yeah, yeah and I think one of the arguments I hear a lot, um, which I'd be interested to hear your perspective on, is that and this this one applies more to smoking than to drinking, but I have heard people say it about drinking too. But while it's in it's a, it's unhealthy, therefore you should never ever do it. But I think uh, that's a completely inconsistent argument because the same people will justify you know having a piece of pie at Thanksgiving or you know having ice cream or you know any number of unhealthy things that are really just for sheer enjoyment. There's no there's no nutritional value in some of these treats that we enjoy. Um, so if, if we're going to follow that logic, then we have to be perfectly consistent and never ever do anything that is in any way unhealthy, <laughs> which is almost impossible. Um, so I, I guess just the health argument, like how would you respond to that if someone were to say, well, drinking is inherently unhealthy? Um, I, and I, I actually really love the way you just put it, Sam, that um, you, you point out that if you're going to do this kind of seamless garment arguing, then you're going to have to get rid of a lot more than just mm -hmm. tobacco and alcohol. Um, and you could also point out that the saints themselves did not necessarily maximize bodily health. Uh, they practiced, now I'm not saying that... Uh, you know, uh, strict fasting or uh, whipping yourself is quite the same as enjoying a, a cigar. Um, but the point is that they sometimes treated their body roughly for a spiritual gain. And um, sometimes uh, a pipe or a good glass of wine, maybe they're not the best for the body, but they may have some spiritual benefit. Uh, you know, like the kinds we've already been talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, There's a famous uh, and wonderful 20th century Catholic apologist, uh, Father Monsignor Ronald Knox. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he loved to smoke. And one of his quotes was, tobacco is essential for celibacy. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think he said that? That's I think he found smoking to be a stress reliever. So, uh, that's so yeah. funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, I want you to talk a little bit about your books. We have three of them. I'm going to just start by saying that, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, um, I think before we got on the call, that this is kind of like the travel size. And so I'm going to uh, give away uh, drinking with the patron saints. If you shoot us an email at info at catholicgentleman.com, um, we'll have uh, about 48 hours. So, you know, on September 10th, I'll do a drawing um, to uh, pick 
you know, five individuals that uh, shot us their um, email. Uh, send me your email. Look for a response if you win, because I need to get your mailing address and everything. So, but Michael, tell us about, I've got two of your books and there's also Drinking with St. Nick that I do not have. Um, I'd love for you to talk about each of these books um, briefly and why you chose to, to, I mean, we understand why you chose to write the original one, but why did you add the patron saints and the St. Nick on top of that? Absolutely. So the first one is Drinking with the Saints and it follows the liturgical calendar in pairing beer, wine, and spirits with the feast days of the year. And uh, the reason why there are two sequels is that even though Drinking with the Saints is pretty hefty, I, I think yeah. it's 450 pages and okay. it's kind of a paperweight as well. Yeah. Um, but even there, I didn't have a drink for every day of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually about every other day. I try to make sure not too many days elapsed without a drinking suggestion. Um, and also I was bearing in mind that with the Catholic reckoning of time, you can you can start celebrating on the vigil of the Feast of the Saints. <laughs> so if you don't see anything for September 7th, you know that, for example, you could still the evening of September 7th drink something for September. the Feast of September 8th. But like I said, there were still gaps. And so drinking with St. Nick filled in the Advent Christmas gap. The, in Drinking with St. Nick, there are drinking suggestions for every day of the Christmas season. And <laughs> so it, it goes from early December to January 6th. Yeah. And I made sure oh. we ran the gamut. So you're, you're fully covered for Advent and Christmas time. And then the third book is Drinking with Your Patron Saints. And so this one, rather than being organized in terms of the church year, it's organized basically in terms of patronages. So you, you look at a list, you, you've got a cause. Uh, you want who's the patron saint of a certain country? Who's the patron saint of a certain occupation? Uh, who's the patron saint against a certain malady? And then you find out who that saint is, and then you go to that saint listed in the book, and there will be a story about him and some drink suggestions. Wonderful. Well, thank you. That's exciting. I'm very grateful for the time you spent in putting together all these books and for joining us today. Um, it's just been a blessing, and and it's great to to share and fellowship with you, but also to understanding kind of right reason and right order about, um, you know, alcohol consumption, you know, in our own personal lives. Well, thank so, you so much. It's been, it's been great being on your show and I, I love your work. I've been a fan for many years. Well, thank you, Michael. And we'll have to have you back um, one of these times in the future here. So as we like to end every episode. Be a man, be a saint.